everyone, and welcome to the Bloke and the Bird Show. Yay! Yay? I don't know. Because we're back. back. We've consistently done this for, what, four whole weeks? I mean, you could do the, the whole car talk thing. You know, ha! <laughs> we're back. Yeah, but we <laughs> haven't been gone for any length of time. But no. we still, they don't typically go for, you know, they go for a commercial break for the third half of their show. Well, there's that. They're not doing anything these days. Well, that's true. <laughs> I, you got you got nothing else. I got nothing. I was going to tell you that I was listening to a different podcast, and have you discovered Hidden Brain yet? If you haven't, it's a good one. Very sciency. No, I haven't. Um, but they did an episode on laughter, and actually quoted the Cartoff guys. Okay, what did they say? Well, it was about. I mean, you could have mentioned it. <laughs> It was about the the tone quality and the distinctiveness of laughter, mm-hmm. and they particularly called them out because they were not afraid to laugh in their show and laugh at each other and laugh at other people. And That's all they did, pretty much. <laughs> but what they were talking, the context was around whether or not laugh tracks enhanced laughter in a show or detracted laughter in a for a show, because they some countries. The same show would be played without a laugh track where it was played with a laugh track in this country. And it's actually a fairly recent occurrence, except for things like Car Talk, um, that had laughter in their shows. Well, you know, one of the questions would be, I don't know about recent occurrence, because, you know, I Love Lucy and... and well, that, those the were can, the and, canned laughter. Ah, the, the laugh tracks as opposed to recorded in front of a studio audience. Yes. That's the thing that I don't think happens nearly as much anymore is the studio audience outside of the talk shows. I mean, remember all the shows in the 80s of Cheers is filmed in front of a live studio audience. Exactly. And I think that there became some spontaneity to the laughter that came with that. Yeah. Um, because it wasn't a laugh track laughter. It was spontaneous laughter based on what was going on because it was filmed in front of a live studio audience. Anyway, I'm not furthering the cause of F1, am I? No, and, and, you know, we we are recorded as well in front of a live studio audience of a couple of cats, a dog, and some dust. Okay, I'm doing (laughs) my best here with the dust. We have been in the process of moving, and I just unpacked it like nine more boxes today. I it wasn't faulting you. Again, cat's dog makes dust. Yeah, yes. And dander and cat hair. And lots of cat hair. So, yeah, not your fault, but it gives us a, a, an ever-growing audience. Uh, yes. Unfortunately, none of them laugh. No. Or maybe they do, but we can't hear it. It's probably a high pitch that's beyond human hearing. Oh, maybe. Anyway. Back to Formula One. Back to Formula One and what's going on. So, do you remember last year? No. Oh. Well, think back to last year as we were talking about the financial stylings of one VJ Malia. Yes. And whether or not he was going to sell the team or keep the team or what was going on with it. And there were rumblings that folks might have been placing some bids on the team. Correct. One of which um, was a 
consortium, well, actually, no, it wasn't a consortium. It was the Russian chemical company, Uracali. Oh, I remember that. More importantly, it was led, or the, the Eurocali group is led by Dmitry Mazepin, whose son was trying to get a seat in Formula One. Oh, so it was competing billionaires trying to buy their boys seats in Formula One? Well, yeah, there was that. Um, well, when the team went into uh, bankruptcy... Mm-hmm. Eurocali stepped forward with a bid, but everything went to Lawrence Stroll and Racing Point, and, and what became Racing Point. Correct. And Dimitri Mazepin was a little upset with this. And we mentioned this last year that threatening some lawsuits, threatening to, to take action here because he did not believe that the process was done fairly or legally for that matter. Okay. Um, well, it... Turns out that he's moving forward with this. Uh, a court date has been set for late 2020 to that's, hear this. That's awfully far in the future. Yeah, I mean, it is in the UK courts. I don't know, you know, how that worked. Um, what we do know about this is um, Eurek Halley is claiming that they made, quote, an extremely generous offer to acquire the company's business assets and goodwill which included a cash consideration of between 101.5 and 122 million pounds, depending on the specific structure of the other bids. Wow. Now, I think we had heard what Lawrence had paid to get the team, and I don't recall what it was. I don't recall. I don't know if it was in that ballpark or not, but that's what they're saying. Now, Racing Point and FRP Advisory, which is who... Uh, took the team through bankruptcy and, and transferred the ownership over to Racing Point and Lawrence, says that uh, they fulfilled their statutory duties as administrators throughout this process and ultimately achieved a very successful outcome for all stakeholders. We remain fully confident that this business legal action will be, di- or this baseless legal action will be dismissed. Interesting. So it's looking like um exchange of of witness evidence will be in April of 2020 with the trial itself looking to be between October and December of 2020. Okay. So y- you got to wonder how this could possibly play out. So either they accept it and nothing changes and and, and we move on or 2 years later after this is all wrapped up and the team has been doing business and Lawrence has been profiting off of it or losing money off it, one or the other, and Lance has been driving cars for... Wrecking know, cars. That too. Um, well, no, he hasn't been wrecking lately. He just hasn't been racing well. Well, he had to slow down, so he stopped wrecking. Well, there you go. That's what it was. <laughs> um, but Lance, you know, Lance has been driving for, for two years now, and they turn around and they f- say that this was done improperly. Do you really think that the team is going to change ownership or are they just going to pay a fine and move on? You pay a fine and move on. So, yeah. It's it's sour grapes, sore losers, all of those things. And probably won't actually go to trial. They'll get through the witness statements and somebody, it's some maneuver to get somebody to open a book somewhere to show their hand and, oh, okay. And then they got the piece of information they needed and move on with their lives. So, one of the other groups... Now, admittedly, 
when this was happening last year and we first heard about this, we didn't really know, like most people, who they were and made some assumptions. I freely admit that last year... You made assumptions? Well, not just that I made assumptions, but I made assumptions that Rich Energy was an energy company and not a drinks company. Oh, okay. Because we first started hearing rumors that Rich was trying to get their hands on Force India beginning of the season last year, maybe even around the fall of the previous season. Mm -hmm. We first started hearing about this. And of course, now we A, know that they are, were, might have been purported to be an energy drink company. Um, But the story continues story as in William's story well without William all I know is that you sent me a link to a story and I started reading it and literally the thought that hit my brain was if this was not reality no one would believe it well you know the Jalopnik's reporting on this and they're they're not the only one who have who has come out with some significant exposés in the last couple of days on this entire saga that has gone on. And and Jalopnik is actually, if anything, they've been pushing it a lot harder than everybody else. But for like the last two months, they've been turning around and saying that if we wrote this as a screenplay, nobody would have bought it because they would have said it was that implausible. Yeah, that's what I meant. It was like, no one would believe this bit of fiction at all. And yet it is absolute reality. So before we get to all of the other information about Rich that was finally revealed this week, Monday, papers were filed with Companies House in the UK, which is you know their trademark and company register in the UK. Um, papers were filed with Company House today that confirmed that William, or, or I say today, on Monday, Uh, confirmed that William Story's appointment as a director had been terminated, as had that of his colleague Zoran Terzik. In addition, William was listed as no longer being a person with significant control of the company. Oh, my. So we've got additional information about this. Um, He was replaced in that role by Matthew Kell, who was also appointed a director. The documents say that Kell holds more than 75% of the shares of the company, either directly or indirectly. That's important because that 75% number was originally William Story's number. Right. So what has apparently happened is... um, for starters, the, the registered address of the company was changed from William Story's Richmond offices to a London company called the BDG Group. Mm-hmm. The BDG Group apparently specializes in assisting directors, chief executives of organizations that are in significant trouble for a wide variety of reasons, helping them find a quote-unquote graceful exit from the organization and transferring the assets and the reputation to somebody else. I did not know that this was a thing. 
BDG Group's website says that they are the UK's leading unlicensed insolvency practitioners. We offer a genuine alternative to our clients, which will give you a clean bill of health going forwards. Your reputation will be intact, and we'll deal with all the outstanding issues. We will acquire your company, and you can resign and let us handle everything from that point on. Our team of lawyers, accountants, and specialist negotiators will deal with everything from preparing financial reports and negotiating with your creditors to attending any necessary insolvency meetings. We will present your former business and your role in it to all your stakeholders in the most favorable light possible. Mm -hmm. One of the other things that they do upon taking over an organization is they typically, and they have a stable of these fairly generic-ish names that they reassign. So technically now, Rich Energy is Volt, is Lightning Volt. Yes. Is the new name of the company. Right. Now, how this impacts Haas and Haas's sponsorship deal and all, we don't know. But apparently, that's what's happened. And it's gone to an insolvency company. Well, yeah. But like I said, I didn't know that this was a business. So so at its core, what I understand is happening is William Story has sold his shares Mm -hmm. to this group of people that essentially handhold the transition of power, but give Story an out. He gets to resign, leaving all of the mess to this group that will clean it all up and rethink it in such a way that then they can pass it on. It's a way of Story not actually getting ousted and not letting his minority shareholders take over the business. He's passed the business off to this other group. It's a wild concept. But like I said, not ever something that I knew happened. Well, hold on to that thought of of what just happened there. Okay. Because both Autosport and ESPN have written some extremely good stories about what has gone on over the last 12 months or so, 18 months or so, with Rich Energy and coming into Formula One and and all of those various bits and pieces. And we need to talk about both of them. Um, The ESPN story is on their website. You got to do a little digging to get into uh, F1 if you're in the States because, you know, ESPN doesn't believe that F1 really exists in the States, even though they cover it. Autosport, yeah, Autosport, you've got a, uh, you can get it for free, but you've got to register on their site to read the story. Um, And this is in addition to all that we've already talked about from Jalopnik and everything that they've been doing, because they've been picking at this for months. Mm -hmm. And in a way, from looking at these stories and how long they were and how much was here, I got to kind of wonder as to whether or not both ESPN and Autosport had all of this, knew all of this information, and was afraid to report on it. There's an awful lot there. there. There's an awful lot there. And, you know, being how small the F1 paddock is, I got to kind of wonder that if they lit into a title sponsor the way they did in these articles, that there would be concern about being blacklisted and losing some of their access. I 
can imagine. So going back to last year, and again, how we talked about that there was rumbling that um, he was trying to get, that William Story was trying to buy Force India. Mm-hmm. Um, their bid actually went to the judge that was handling the whole case. And the judge there said that they didn't believe, or where was it? Among those who harbored doubts was a judge who was involved with the Force India administration process last, last summer who did not view Story as a viable future owner of the team. Okay. Um, looking at the finances, which we'll talk about in a minute, where he would have come up with any of this money makes no sense whatsoever. But what he managed, what William managed to do was to leverage the work that he had done to, to give himself a bit of legitimacy uh, around Formula One to somehow get in the good graces of Bernie Eccleston. Mm-hmm. Because it was Bernie Eccleston who made the introduction to Claire Williams for a possible sponsorship deal. Because Story made the decision, William Story made the decision when he got pushed away from the Force India deal. Well, he still wanted to be involved in Formula One. Maybe he could do sponsorship and somehow convince Bernie Eccleston that he was real. The the thought is that um, one of his, and it's not clear if he was an associate or a potential backer, was the owner of the West Ham Football Club. Which oh. is a big concern in the UK, um, not as big as Manchester United or something, but they're one of the major teams, um, and was using David Sullivan, the owner of West Ham, as some degree of bona fides mm. to get in the door at some of these places, including potentially Bernie. So Bernie goes and introduces um, him to Claire Williams, and, and, and getting his foot, getting William Story's foot in the door over at Williams. Story flies out to the U.S. Grand Prix. We saw him wandering around in the paddock with Williams gear and hanging and touring garages and all that stuff. He stayed in an upmarket hotel, had his picture taken with the drivers. We knew this was coming to the point that even Williams thought a deal was coming. An appointment was made they had expected in, in Austin after the race at dinner that they were going to be signing a contract with William Story for a title sponsorship. He didn't show up. Can you tell me how much Claire is feeling like she dodged that bullet? Dodged a huge bullet. Mm-hmm. What actually happened was right after the race, he wandered over to the hospitality unit. Oh, but wait. Eccleston introduced him to Gunther Steiner. No, Eccleston introduced him to Claire Williams, not to Gunther. He wandered over in there, and here word is that Gunther met him when he wandered into the Haas hospitality unit and said, hey, nice to meet you, wandered everybody around, and according to Autosport, it was at the hospitality unit that Story concluded negotiations that had been going on in parallel with his discussions with Williams. Right. <clears throat> but I thought I read in that article that Eccleston had made both of those introductions. No. Only mentions uh, making the introduction to, to Williams. Okay. Um, so three days after this had happened, um, Haas, who turned around and said that they weren't looking for a title sponsor, the whole reason for them doing this was to promote Haas machine tools, 
announce that William's story was, or, or that Rich Energy was their new title sponsor. Got it. Okay. Um, a letter from Haas's lawyer released on Twitter by William Story last week dated the start of the contract as October 21st, which is also a little odd because that was the Sunday of the Austin race, mm-hmm. the day that he stood up Claire Williams. Yeah. Um, the word on the street is that the Haas deal was for less than had been agreed with Williams. Um, we mentioned last week that uh, the team was expecting 14 million pounds next year and 15 million pounds in 2021. Um, so people are a little concerned about how this went down. Mm-hmm. You know, to, to stiff, stiff another team like this, that's not how the paddock typically does business. Exactly. So, so that bothered some folks. Um, there's been a lot of questions about what kind of due diligence Haas did. And this is where I jump over to the reporting that came from ESPN. So, yeah, Gunther Steiner says, your due diligence you don't do with a the person there. There's some other ways to do that. We did what we need to do. We needed to do it before we met him. Why do you doubt that? Obviously, we did what we needed to do, and our advisors were content with that. And I put Gunther's quote in there before I mentioned this next piece of information that came out. So, according to financial documents that were available through Companies House, Rich Energy's bank balance, their bank balance in 2016 was all of 103 pounds. <laughs> That's $134. In 2017, they made some money. They, they, they did a little better. And, and, you know, we picked it this last week. But in 2017, 581 pounds. $770. Yep. What kind of due diligence was done here with that kind of a bank balance that says that this is a company, this is an entity that, that has not just exists, but has the millions of pounds, that has the dump truck full of money mm-hmm. to title sponsor a team? I know. I don't understand it. I don't either. I do not understand. Now, you also look at the fact that, again, last numbers that we have, 2017, all of $770 in the bank account. Mm -hmm. And William Story just sold his shares in the company. How much did he make? That's a good question. I'm betting that he's banking on that number being a lot more than the $770 that they had in 2017. I'm banking on that too. Uh, So have some some quotes from Judge Melissa Clark, um, who was sitting on the copyright case with White Bikes. Mm -hmm. Also, very damning. Oh, she wrote some really good comments. So what she said, and this is again related specifically around the logo issues. I found both Mr. Story and Mr. Kelly, who was uh, William Story's friend, Sean Kelly, 
um, supposed designer of yeah, the, the, the designer and owner of Staxo Web. She said, I find both Mr. Story and Mr. Kelly to be poor witnesses. Mr. Story provided different and inconsistent accounts of the development of the Rich Energy logo, which also conflicted to a large extent with the evidence of Mr. Kelly. He often did not answer questions directly, preferring to make speeches about his vision for his business or alternatively seeking to evade questions by speaking in generalities or in the third-person plural. He only answered several questions when I intervened. He had a tendency to make impressive statements, which on further investigation or consideration were not quite what they seemed. (laughs) One of the things that he specifically or that she specifically talked about with these claims was when the lawyer for White in cross-examination tried to understand his evidence about the sales figures of rich energy drinks and put to him that he had been quoted in the press in February 2019 as saying that that rich energy had produced 90 million cans. Mr. Story explained that it had produced 90 million cans but had not yet filled or sold them. Mm-hmm. So he produced empty cans. Yes. He said he would have to check the figures, but in 2018 he thought Rich Energy had filed, had filled and sold around 3 million cans. Not 90 million cans. 3 million is less than 90 million. You are correct. Yeah. So think about that. Potential profits from 3 million cans. Uh, how is that going to fund an F1 sponsorship deal? Well, each can is sold for $1,000 a piece, of course. Oh, yeah. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the math has to work out somehow, right? Yeah. So she went further on going after William Story's claim about how the brand got its name. Mm. Yeah. Um... She pointed out that it was founded in Croatia in 2013 and that the connection with William Story's hometown of Richmond was just a coincidence. She said, I am satisfied that some of Mr. Story's evidence was incorrect or misleading and that he was involved in the manufacture of documents during the case of litigation to provide additional support for the defendant's case. I do not accept either Mr. Story or Mr. Kelly as credible or reliable witnesses and I treat all of their evidence with a high degree of caution. That's an illegal document. A yep. court finding. Yep. Yeah. I love the statement of, I do not find him to be credible. I'm like, no, really, neither do we. <laughs> yeah. So that's where things are going. Now, August 1st is the next deadline that we have. Mm-hmm how it's going to work now. So, so August 1st is important because that was the date for the next round of things that were due um, from Rich Energy. And this was specifically around full financial information about Rich Energy, including details of the, de- of the dealing with Haas. Okay. That's August 1st. Okay. We already know that the 35,000 pounds that was due on July 11th was not paid. Correct. Probably because they couldn't write that check on the 700 and some few dollars that they had in their account. And whatever they just paid to William Story for selling off his shares. Yeah, but they, 
Rich did not pay that. This BRG group. Somebody bought, somebody paid him off for those shares. Mm -hmm. Is not good. Yeah. All right. Is there any more twists and turns to this horrendous story? Oh, there's probably more coming. We don't have any yet. We're going to continue to keep an eye on this because this is the kind of drama we kind of like. Yeah, we do. I was just wondering if we could move on and talk about, you know, something fascinating like tires or engines or something like that. Well, I was going to talk about some other Haas stuff. Oh, okay. Um, So Gunther Steiner says that he needs to come up with a solution to make his drivers stop hitting each other. Rubber bumpers. Yeah. Ropes course. Trust falls. <laughs> so what he has, the instructions that the drivers have, not just don't hit each other. There, there, there's more to it. He says that um, the team's instruction to the drivers has been that even if one driver is in the right, you give it up and we sort it out later in the race. Mm-hmm. That's what he says. And he expects that that instruction right there is enough to keep the drivers from hitting each other. It's not. I would argue that that right there is enough to make your drivers hit each other. (laughs) Well, think about it. It's not telling them don't... Well, it's kind of maybe sort of telling them don't race. But it's even if the other guy is in the right, you'll, you'll let him go. I don't know how you tell two racing drivers who are fighting for position in their jobs. That you leave them a wide berth. I mean, okay, so... But that's not what, what he's really saying. That's not what he's that, saying. That's, that's not what Esteban Ocon and Sergio Perez were told last year of you don't race, you don't get into tangles, you do not touch. It was clear and it was explicit. This is not clear and explicit. No, it is not. But other... Okay, good. Teams um, have rules around their teammates racing. You may race as long as you don't take each other out. Mm -hmm. That was Mercedes, uh, Hamilton, Rosberg years until they took each other out in Spain. And the new phrase was, you touch each other, you're going to sit on the naughty step. Um, But this is, it's, it's this idea of... If you're ticked off because somebody got the better of you, we'll sort it out later. It doesn't work that way. You got to give these guys clear and explicit instructions. Mm -hmm. And keep it that way. And it doesn't help that um, Gunther says that he refused to listen to his driver's points of view during a post-race reprimand because he said he did not need to hear that explanation. He indicated that he might want to hear it later in a week, but also wanted to work out why they are failing to adhere to instructions. Okay. So he said, it seems to not get through, but I don't know what is not getting through. I need to think what we do about it with a clear head and make a decision how we sort this out because it isn't acceptable. I can do a lot of things. I don't have to list them all to you, but we need to make a decision how we avoid it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I agree, but this kind of wishy-washy... Well, you know, even if he's in the right, let him go and we'll sort it out later, especially when... They had an incident and you won't talk to them about it. <laughs> yeah. I get that you're annoyed. 
I get that it's unacceptable, but it, yes, it's unacceptable, and you need to be clear about it. You can't just kind of, uh, well, we kind of told them not to. Yeah. No, you have to be more clear about it. You have to be explicit. And, you know, it's, I don't understand why they keep running into each other. We told them not to, but we didn't really. Yeah. No. So, with yet another race going by with Roman Grosjean either getting into an incident or failing to finish, and this past weekend, it was another rough weekend for Roman. I mean, he got, he got into an incident in free practice one in the pit lane. <laughs> He's becoming a first lap nutter again. Well, it, it's worse than that. And, and it's not even necessarily the first lap stuff. I mean, it, this is a very different set of circumstances to 2012 and the troubles that Roman had there and um, folks hypothesizing that, that possibly he had issues with his peripheral vision and that's why he was causing the problems. <laughs> this, this is different. But, but the rumor mill is starting to ramp up about Roman's future. Um, it's not so bright he needs to wear shades? No. There, I mean, there there's a lot of question as to whether or not Roman will be remaining in Formula One, let alone with the team for 2020. Um, some of the rumors that have ramped up have, have gone so far as to say, and, and this is, again, a rumor coming from a F1 quote, and using the air quotes there, insider on Reddit of all places. Oh, so you know it's real. Yeah. Okay, saw it on Reddit. It's real. So that insider is claiming that Esteban Ocon will replace Roman sometime before the end of the season. Oh, will he now? Yeah. Now, we don't know much more than that, um, but this seems to be the, the current spin of the rumor mill is who's going to take Roman's <laughs> seat. Um, because also who has been named as pot- potentially being in line to replace Roman is Pietro Fittipaldi, who's currently driving over in IndyCar. <laughs> okay. So it's like spinning the wheel of drivers. Who's going to replace Roman? That, that's it. <laughs> Where the, the wheel stops, no one knows. I'm going to predict Renus VK. Oh. Stingray Rob. Oh, no. Stingray no. Rob is going to jump directly from road to Indy right into the hot seat. Really? <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> so I was going through, just because you mentioned Renus, mm-hmm. I was going through my pictures looking for something. And it was about a year ago that we were at Mid Ohio with the McGinnises. And I have a selfie with Renus waiting for him to like grow up and become a famous driver. And I can say, I knew you win. In, in all seriousness, word came out this week that Renus is getting an IndyCar test. Wow. Um, He's a good driver. I mean, he, let's... he is. I, I, I don't recall which series or, or which team it was off the top of my head. I, I, I th- Actually, I think it was Ed Carpenter. Oh, cool. Um, I think it's Ed Carpenter racing that is 
giving Renus uh, an IndyCar test. Very cool. I'm sure Renus's dad will be pumped. But yes, it's been about a year because I heard from Gary this week going, hey, you guys coming to mid-Ohio? And I had to go, no. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, He only wants you to drive the golf cart for him again. (laughs) So in other news. In other news. Away from... The Haas drivers banging into each other. and Haas drama. Yeah, Haas drama. Hashtag Haas drama. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if only we use hashtags. <laughs> Wait, do you even know what a hashtag is? Yes, I know what a hashtag is. I even remember when it used to be a pound sign. Nope, it's a sharp. Yeah, that's that too. <laughs> <laughs> You walked right into my trap. I sure did. (laughs) So in other news. In other news. Hopefully you like the racing in Melbourne. We kind of do like the racing in Melbourne. It's usually a... a (laughs) was like, was there something wrong with the racing in Melbourne? I I don't think so. I think it's it's gotten better over the years. Um, But hopefully you like them because they got a two-year extension. And we'll be hosting the uh, Australian Grand Prix uh, into the 2025 season. I think that's really cool. I think the coolest part of Melbourne is the commitment to the fans. Well, it's if you listen to everything that goes on, that whole it's not just the commitment to the fans, but it is a full-on commitment to a motorsports weekend taking over a good portion of the city and. Yeah, it's a Formula One weekend, and they've got the feeder races. They've got a lot of feeder races. Well, yeah. And the other thing is, if you are disappointed by the racing in Melbourne, keep in mind, it is the first race of the season. They're still shaking down those cars. It gives an opportunity for serious shakeups. It does. Um, now, next year's event, which has already been announced to be, uh, to be on March 15th, Okay. That will be the 25th anniversary of the race in Melbourne. Yay! Cool. So, yeah. Other things looking to the future. Future, future, future. We're starting to get the first information, the first releases about what the 2021 rules are going to look like. They're going to have rules, right? They are going to have rules and... The big change that's happening, and it's a fairly big one, is that they are look they are going to completely rethink the aerodynamics on the car, um, and go with more ground effect produced aerodynamics. So why that's important, why that matters. Yeah. So now in a modern F one car, all of the the downforce that's generate on the car is thanks to all the complex wings and turning vanes and fins and everything that is on the top of the car. Okay. So it can make the cars look, yes, very sculpted. Mm-hmm. But also, as we have talked about, means that they can't follow very closely to the cars in front of them because they disturb the, the air so much that they lose the downforce that's generated by all of that, those bits. If you follow too close. By going with a ground effect concept, most of that aerodynamics happens on the bottom of the car. 
Okay. So the amount of air and turbulence that's created by a Formula One car going passing through a volume of space is dramatically less, which means in theory, the cars can race closer. That would be cool. It also means that if the drawings that we are seeing are correct, the top of the cars, the visible parts of the cars become much simpler. Oh, okay. Um, so what they're looking to do is um, much simpler and less sensitive front wing. Um, they want to make it possible, like I said, according to Nicholas Tombasis, make it possible for the cars to race and follow each other and to have more exciting uh, battles. Uh, there's going to be a diffuser right under the car. It's going to be a Venturi channel type manner. And there are tunnels that are going to be under the side pods from the front to the back. And the thought is that the combination of the ground effect, that's what this is by working on the bottom. Um, and this is something that Lotus in the late 70s pioneered. And then they banned it 10 years later because that's what Formula One does. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thought is that um, the simpler aerodynamics and front wheel deflectors will all work together to allow the cars to follow one another much closer. So if you think about the current generation of cars, which were already had rules changes to simplify the aerodynamics and allow the cars to move faster. Um, those cars, the current cars, lose 45% of their downforce when they are two car lengths behind one another. Wow. The simulation data that they have for this concept that they're working on for 2021 puts that loss at between 5 and 10%. Ooh. So that could have a significant impact. So according to what uh, uh, Nick Tambaza says, two strong, two strong vortices coming off the rear wing suck in a lot of the rear wing wake. And as a result, what the following car sees is much cleaner flow. So there's a massive reduction of the loss of downforce for the following car. Nice. So that's what they're looking for. So some of the things that you should see is the... I hesitate to call it a shark wing in this year's cars. It's certainly smaller than what was last year, but that would potentially completely go away again. Mm-hmm. The turning vanes on the side of the cars that we, that have gotten so dramatic and so sculpted, those would potentially go away. The front wings would have fewer elements and be much simpler and cleaner. All of that would potentially go away. I would hesitate to describe the drawings as being swoopy. You would hesitate to call them that? That would be the word I would use, okay. but I'm concerned that somebody will come back to me and go, that's not swoopy. But I think that looks swoopy. If nothing else, they're cleaner. They're cleaner. Curvy. Now, Ross Braun is pointing out that in order to achieve this, that means that they're going to be taking away a bit of the design freedom that the teams have. Oh. They're going to be locking stuff down. His reason for that is, again, they want to prevent the teams from doing anything that could be detrimental to good racing mm-hmm. and to close racing. So the way he sees it is that if they get their way, a major breakthrough for a team might be two tenths of a second, where now a major breakthrough for a team is... Two seconds. Correct. 
too tense keeps everybody yeah it's tight but it still keeps the field kind of close together mm-hmm. they're really pushing for this idea that by getting the 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 teams closer together that some of these mid-pack teams once again have a chance to become a disruptor which we have not seen in several years true so that that's the whole goal the the whole goal here one of the things that they are doing to help make this possible is you know we've seen mercedes pull this off many times we've seen red bull pull this off many times of they look at some of the grayer areas in the rules mm-hmm. and look at ways to exploit it. How they can turn around and leverage that into a game-changing advantage. Yes. And Ross Braun's familiar with it. He's the one who came up with the double diffuser <laughs> that gave Jensen Button his world championship. Yep. They are actually standing up, and right now it is called a rule-breaking group specifically to look at the aerodynamics that are being proposed to try and nail down all of these potential gray areas to prevent a team from exploiting them. Mm. I don't know if it'll happen, but that's what they're looking at. All right. The other thing that they're looking to do is it's looking like they're going to abandon the high-degradation tires that have been in play for, what, the last almost 10 years? Since we started watching Formula One. Now, again, for, for what these tires, so rehashes to what's special about these tires is that, um, and in some years it's more pronounced than others, as the name implies, they degrade fairly quickly. And the tires are designed to be have a very narrow operating window around temperature. And as long as the temperature stays where it needs to be, the tire will perform at its best. Too warm or too cold, and it either it doesn't grip as well or it falls apart faster and doesn't last as long. Um, and the whole idea here was by having these high degradation tires, one, it would mean that the driver's would have to manage the tires, and the teams would have to manage the tires better, um, potentially mixing up strategies, mm-hmm. um, allowing for more passing was the hope. The other thing was the fact that it would mean more pit stops. Again, flexing some strategies, changing all of that stuff. Um, what we've been finding is that mixed results at best. Some years it's better than others, and others it's just... It, it complete miss and you have tires that randomly explode for no good reason. It's the randomly exploding tires that's not a benefit of the high deck tires. Yeah. So now it's looking like the series is going to abandon the high degradation tires for 2021. Now we already knew that it was going to be a whole new approach to the tires to begin with because they're changing the wheel size. Correct. They're going to the 18-inch wheels, which means the tires themselves have a much thinner sidewall and the teams can't use the tires as part of their suspension <laughs> always bad thing you, you laugh but but that was one of the things that they were doing was because the sidewall was as big as it was the suspension was designed to use the tire as part of the stabilizing feature of the car Correct. they lose a lot of that effect because the t- of the wheel size right but the other thing that they're talking about doing is they want to move away from 
high degradation tires. I don't know how this is going to work. Are they then going to turn around? And, and the idea is with more durable tires, drivers can push harder on the tires. They don't have to manage the tires as much. And again, this idea of they can fight harder, we can potentially have better racing because they're not having the tires fall off the cliff and away they go. But what we don't know is, are they then going to come in and have to mandate certain number of pit stops per race so that we don't get somebody out there on a single tire for the entire race? And and that's one of the questions. And and I've heard that, I guess, Le Mans or, or WEC has been known to do something like that of saying you can, regardless of the condition of the tire, there's a max you can run on that tire before you have to change it out. Are they going to do something like that? And again, which means we're now going to have artificial pit stops, even more artificial pit stops. Mm-hmm. Um, or are they just going to turn around and lift that whole requirement for pit stops to begin with? Where my concern is, is, you know, we've seen races in the last three years where the tires were so durable and the track surface was not in the least bit abrasive that drivers were able to push for the vast majority, if not the entire race, and only had to come in to meet the requirement of the rules. And at the end of the day, it wasn't better racing. Right. It sucked. Well, okay, but there was also, some of that had to do with the track. I mean, that was, was so Russia. cheap for yeah. the first couple of years, and that's a track that sucked on tires and is boring as all get out. But... It's what I mean. They pointed out afterward. It is what everybody asked for in the tires. We don't want anybody to have to manage. They didn't have to manage their tires at all, and it was not a good race. Are you actually so I, in support of high deck tires? I don't know. I I don't. I think know. you're going to have to come up with a position and stick to it. I I probably will at some point. I need to see the rest of the rules to understand what the plan is and whether or not this is going to be some kind of an artificial, you know, you can't run more than X number of laps and the tires can last three times longer than that or if there's something else going on here. Um, The thing is, my biggest complaint about the high-deck tires is the random exploding. I find that to be an unsafe condition. It is, and it hasn't happened in a while. And, and True. They have gotten better high-deck tires. There was the year that they just, when they started to fall off the cliff, if you weren't close to the pit stop, they were exploding on you. And I didn't necessarily have a problem with the the whole cliff idea. It was how long it took before you hit that cliff. And... What again? If you hit that cliff and the the tires lost their traction and didn't explode, Mm -hmm. didn't fall apart, it could have been interesting. Especially since the teams had to figure out where that point was and how to manage to it. Teams have figured it out now. Twenty twelve, they hadn't figured it out, which is why we had what eight races and eight winners. That was good, wasn't it? It was. It was really good. It was it was amazing. But and those were the, the highest deg of the highest deg tires. Mm-hmm. I understand. All right. 
Speaking of pit stops, mm-hmm. I didn't put this in the lineup, and I meant to have it in there. Um, there was a world record set on last Sunday at the British Grand Prix. The longest pit stop ever? Fastest pit stop. Who did it? Red Bull, 1.9 and change seconds. Oh. Wow. That's crazy. Under two seconds, change four tires and get them out on the road again. Wow. I mean, what I, one of the areas that I would like to see them address is amazing, is absolutely staggering it is to think that they're able to turn bring a car in and out in 1.9 seconds, which means they started working on that car before it had stopped moving. Mm-hmm. As amazing as that is, I would rather see those pit stops get slowed down. The impact that that would have on the racing and the strategy, I think would be much bigger to have a slower pit stop. Even if they turned around and they said, you know, look at, to some extent, the IndyCar model and cut back on the number of guys, the number of engineer, of mechanics who are allowed to work on a car in the pit lane. Mm. I like that idea a little bit, just from that standpoint of you can't keep throwing humans at the, the problem. And, you know, maybe the, 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 where you start is... If if you look at changing a tire and how that process is, there's a minimum of two people at every wheel. Mm-hmm. You know the the guy who slams three now. No, I think it's only the two. But it, you, you've got the the guy with the the air gun. You've got the guy who holds the tire, puts it on, and actually there may be an, there's a it's third the, one to take it off. Yeah, it's it's at least three. You've got the tire taker offer, the gun guy, and the tire putter on. Make the whole thing the responsibility of the gunman. So you have four guys at each at the car responsible for the tire. Taking the old one off, undoing the bolt, taking the old one off, slamming the new one on, and redoing the bolt. Mm-hmm. One person for each, each wheel. That right there, I think, could have a sizable impact. Of course, the guy that I just rogered up for this is going, yeah, you suck, man. I was just going to say, you know, if if you like that plan, why not have one guy do all four tires or two guys do half the car? I think it's a little extreme. I mean, IndyCar, that's, I think it's like three guys total. Four, maybe if you count the guy who's responsible for the fuel nozzle. Because that should be a dedicated person. You don't that, want to have you don't want to have somebody else having to worry about that too. Maybe four people total to service a car in an IndyCar pit stop. Because they don't even have jackmen. How do they get it up? Oh, the card they're, pops they're, up. Yeah, they're integrated jacks in the car, so it's pulling, stop, driver hits a button, <laughs> pops up. The Le Mans cars do that too. Maybe they need to put that in Formula One cars. I think the Le Mans pit stops. They might only be two. And, of course, they have to be slower because typically at a Le Mans pit stop, they're changing drivers. And not just changing drivers, but they're changing drivers and the driver's seat. Well, you have to have a seat that's custom fitted to your (laughs) bottom. If you're going to drive in on an endurance race, you want the seat that fits your butt. It's a requirement. So, moving on. Moving on. Um, Word from... So, Aston's been talking to the media out of Silverstone. Okay. Um, they're, they're, rev- 
they revealed and drove on the track for the first time for the public the Aston Martin Valkyrie. Okay. Um, the Valkyrie is the car that was designed by Adrian Newey as part of their partnership with Red Bull. Ooh. Yes. Um, and Aston was, was very excited because it didn't look like the car was going to run, and the investors apparently have been... There's been folks who have been short-selling their stock because they think it's going to be that much of a bust. So the fact that they were able to get the car out there and on the track and perform the way it did, Aston is stoked. Excellent. Um, but Aston also says that um, they stand ready for Formula One, but they hope that Honda stays. Okay. What's the thought process? Um, the thought process is, again, that they're going to continue to be partnered with Red Bull. And basically, according to Andy Palmer, the CEO over at Aston Martin, they think that if they were to have a deeper involvement in Formula One, it would obviously be around engine supply. Mm. So they could step in if Honda walked away. They don't want Honda to walk away. They're okay with this deal the way it is. Um, they have no intention to terminate the deal anytime soon. When it's up, they Andy has already said that they intend to renew it. There is no end date that he sees for this partnership. He is thrilled with it. But should Honda wander off, they would consider doing it. Okay. He he says that that he believes that well yeah that would be that would be the logical place to be, and and I guess Honda's only um, committed to twenty twenty. We don't know what they're going to do in twenty one, um, but his feeling is you know Honda's got the resources. Mm-hmm. They've got a large performance division. They've been building race engines even outside of Formula One. They've been building race engines for a very very long time. Aston doesn't have that. And while, yeah, it makes sense, they don't have that kind of a shop in place. Okay. But they'd, be, they'd apparently be willing to do it. Well, we're willing to step up, but we really hope that we don't have to step up. But, I mean, that's one of the things that I don't fully understand is I didn't think that Aston built their own engines. I thought that they got engines from... Mercedes AMG and did some additional engineering work on them. I don't have so any. So I don't know how that would play out. I have no idea how that yeah. works. Um, over at Mercedes, mm-hmm. um, Lewis and Valtteri have been speaking out about the circuits. Oh, really? Um, yeah. So Valtteri has... has gone on the record to say that um, he believes that some of the choice of circuits and locations um, has been lately for pure political reasons and money. Duh. Um, Lewis Hamilton has uh, added to that and said that, you know, for the drivers, they know better than anybody which track the drivers can overtake on and which we can't. He says, I don't know who does the selection. And I know it's not that they always have a ton of tracks in every country that are possible to race a Grand Prix. But there are ones that they're selecting for the future that we're going to have not so not such great racing at. The ones that are on the calendar that aren't great. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, he's right about it. Um, but So he talks specifically, his two favorites right now, 
Silverstone and Austin. That's what he's listing as his favorite because when they uh, interviewed him post Silverstone, they mentioned Hungary, and he goes, "Ooh, I like that." He, track. he likes Hungary a lot. Hungary, he he compares to being like a, driving on a go kart track. Mm-hmm. Um, but the reason why he says that that he he counts them among his favorites is because one, they're ones you can follow at, um, and he also says that they are quote spectacular at high speed. Okay. So there's something that, as a driver, you enjoy driving at a high speed. And I could see that about Austin. There's a lot of talk about how it's very... And I think Hungary is the same way. Well, Hungary's a little different. But Austin being very flowing. And if you get into a rhythm, you can take you can drive that track very well. And that's the thing with Hungary is, is from what they say is you get into a rhythm, that's when they really enjoy driving that track. Mm. And that may be one of the things is for a driver, those tracks flow well. And, and you can pass. And Although that's hungry, something, you can't. Something that Lewis likes is to get into a flow and just let it keep going. Yeah. So, yeah, they're commenting on... And for Valtteri to comment on this is... I, Valtteri I don't think is I've the heard least confrontational like and... You know, he's not a, confer- a controversial kind of guy. So for him to go, I don't think these are the great tracks, I think it's pretty interesting. You obviously believe that these are stemming from their love affair with Paul Ricard, right? Well, you, you, that's what everybody keeps going in Lupi. I'm surprised at the continuing hate for Paul Ricard. Mm-hmm. I mean, last year... People weren't particularly thrilled with it, but the fact that this year they're still piling onto it this this late afterwards surprises me. It was a really dull race. It, it was, and it was arguably one of the worst. And, and I do think that the calls that the, the gloom and doom calls for Formula One after that race were uncalled for mm-hmm. and were extreme to no end. But the track was bad. Oh, yeah. But that's the way punditry for Formula One works. Yeah. You know, they, you've got a guy that wins one race, he's going to win the championship. you got a guy that's gonna, that loses one race, he's going to lose the championship. It's one race out of 21. It's not, we're not there yet. Even though right now, we're getting really close to mathematically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So finally, finally, you know, I, and now that I think about it, I probably should have put this story a lot earlier. You know, if we're, we're turning around and we're randomly naming folks who could possibly be replacing Roman Grosjean over at Haas, I should have had this sooner. Who? Fernando Alonso. Well, he is looking for a seat, I'm sure. Well, I don't know. And that's why we have the story. Okay. So according to Fernando, or, or according to reports, Fernando is playing down talk that he is focused on a return to Formula One next year. He has suggested, that's right, Fernando has suggested that he can find better challenges elsewhere. Ooh, burn. <laughs> <laughs> like making dinner? Well, that... That's what I can't figure out because... Going to the market by himself. He, he, he says that he can find better challenges elsewhere, 
But let's look at his current list of racing commitments. Yeah. Crickets. Yeah. He's not even driving WEC, is he? No, he, he his uh, time w- with Toyota is finished. He's announced that he would not be returning to WEC. His announcement, not Toyota's. Mm. Um, he's already said that he would not be looking at doing a full season uh, IndyCar run next year. So, what's he got? Carding? He does. Doesn't he own a karting track? He does. It's it's next to his museum, and he loves karting. Yeah. Well, maybe he could. And and as much as you may be fairly anti Fernando Alonso, should we find ourselves in a neighborhood, I really think we should go to the museum and his karting track. I'd go. To I his think museum. it'd be really cool. I'd go to his museum. Just for the, for the same reason that I went to Marinello and in embedded myself in all that is Ferrari in Marinello. And it not a Ferrari fan, but it was cool. I think it'd be the same thing. I'm just still stunned that you came home with zero Ferrari gear. Again, there's limits. Not a Ferrari fan. <laughs> I mean, you have manor gear. <laughs> manor yep. racing gear. Let's review. The, the difference, though, is that even if they were still a, a going team, you could wear Manor gear, gear and nobody would look at you and go, oh, you're driving Manor? Yeah. I mean, it's bad enough that I wear my Mercedes AMG Patronus F1 team shirt. And on more than one occasion now, somebody's seen the shirt and go, oh, Mercedes, what dealership? Really, dude? Close your mouth. You're embarrassing yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Just don't. But back to Fernando. Nobody's ever done that when I'm wearing my McLaren shirt. <laughs> yeah, because nobody knows a McLaren dealership. Exactly. Anyway, back to Fernando. So what it looks like, all that he has around now is esports. Esports? Yeah, he has a team. Of 14-year-old boys racing on their computers? It's a bit more... Actually, if you look at some of the coverage that is coming from Formula One and only Formula One, um, the eSports series is a whole lot more than 14-year-olds. These are guys that you would normally see in F2 and trying to crack into F1. These are folks in their early 20s, late teens... And from the video that I've seen, the racing at times is every bit as good, if not more intense than what we have seen. Certainly better than anything at Paul Ricard. <laughs> anything better than Paul Ricard. The eSports series kicks its butt. Okay, on the scale of low bars, that was not a hard one to clear. I know, I know. I, I, what? I, and, what? and I don't know how many clips are out there and how good the racing is and whether it's consistently good but i've seen some really good clips of or, or some clips of really good racing coming out of that series so what was the tv show that we were watching was that a wec series where they brought somebody in that was toyota from the, did it from the e-series yeah well it was 
Yeah, it was it was a WEC E series of some sort, and they had to. It, it's like the Toyota Driving Academy or something like that. They've since ended the program, mm-hmm. um, but the whole goal of it was to see if they could get um, drivers to come up through that side and into the WEC stable, um, and I think they ended up with two or three drivers, but. At least the movie that we were watching about it, it wasn't a good measure of it because the car kept breaking down. And that was that does hamper your ability to measure the program. Yeah. Okay, so that's what Fernando has. Maybe, maybe new career opportunity, Fernando. I'm coming up with one right now. Fernando could become the new spokesperson for Paul Ricard's circuit. Because he partners so well with thriving teams <laughs> and thriving entities. Yeah. So our current list of potential people who could take Roman Grosjean's seat. Uh-huh. We're, 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 you know, we need a whiteboard so we can just track this. Oh, yeah. Some are real, some are not. <laughs> but we're going with Esteban Ocon, Pietro Fittipaldi. Our nomination, Renus VK, mm-hmm. Fernando Alonso. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, those are, those are all people that <laughs> could take the job. Oh, uh, yeah. I don't know. I mean, we could bring back up Marcus Erickson. Well, yeah, because Alexander Rossi isn't going to jump series. No, he's doing too well in any He's in rank. second, and, and actually Joseph Newgarden is leading. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's what they should do. Whoever wins the IndyCar championship. Can I have that, the Haas seat? That's who's taking the Haas. I mean, American Series, American Team. There you go. Add yeah. another name to the list. <laughs> it's when they get turned down by that one that's going to be the problem. <laughs> You have just won the IndyCar championship. You have earned a seat at Haas. And the guy goes, screw it. <laughs> I don't know. I, I Some of them I think would want to make, I mean, to be able to meet the goal that IndyCar has of being a premier mm-hmm. international motorsport, an international series, it would work. It would, but they don't want to be a feeder series to somebody else. True. That's the problem. Speaking of feeder series, last thing. Yeah. Um, though, and I just lost her name, but the woman who is leading the W series, you know, the all women series. Oh my word! I had almost. Com- I well, I had completely forgotten that that was a thing. But wait, the woman who is leading that series, if she wins the series, will make more in her winnings than Lando Norris. No. I saw that this week. She will make. She will pocket more money than Lando Norris will for a full season in Formula One. Wow, she could be a possibility for the Haas seat. There you go. <laughs> we'll have to find out her name because they don't have it off the top of our head. You're gonna need to learn how to spell it so you can put it on our whiteboard that doesn't exist yet. And on that note, we'll call it a show. We are so glad you came. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye bye now. Bye. Bye bye. Remember, please discard all candy wrappers and popcorn containers in the nearest trash receptacle. Thank you. Okay, bye bye now. Bye bye. Bye. <laughs> okay. Are they all gone? Uh, is, is there? Is everybody gone? <laughs> huh? Good. 
Oh my gosh, my cheeks are killing me. I can't keep smiling like this anymore. I am exhausted. I think I need a break. 